Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts this morning to remember that everything is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we stand in this truth, that we stand and we can only stand because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus did. Lord, that he came as a baby, but he didn't stay that way. He grew into an adult who laid down his life for our sins to redeem us from your wrath, Lord. And I pray that we would continue to meditate on that truth. And I pray that you would be with us as we open up your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles. We are going to be in um, Psalm. Well, we're going to be a little bit all over the place this morning, but we're going to start in Psalm chapter 110. This morning, we're going to wrap up our sermon series in the, uh, our Advent sermon series in the Psalms. Um, you know, one of the things that I've discovered over the, the years that I've been uh, preaching, the few short years I've been preaching, is that I really love preaching the Old Testament. I love looking through the history that God has given us through his scriptures and seeing how his plan takes shape, how it plays out. It's absolutely astounding and mind-blowing. If you just take a step back and examine it, yes, there's a lot of of things that we don't understand because, well, we're not ancient Jewish people. But if we just look at the overarching theme, the overarching story of the scriptures, we see how beautiful the scriptures are. In fact, just a a couple of weeks ago on a a Wednesday night Bible study, um, here's a shameless plug. If you're not coming to the Wednesday night Bible studies, I would encourage you to come. We are diving deep into God's word and, and getting to ask a lot of good questions. And right now we're studying through the book of Judges. And uh, the question was brought up, why does this matter to us? That was the question that was asked. What is, what is the purpose of this book of Judges? Why are we studying it? And um, what importance does this play in our lives? And the only response that I could think of at the time, and I still think it's a pretty good response, is that in studying the Old Testament, um, it helps us to see how God brought about his story of redemption, the history of redemption, the story of salvation. We get to see how God used ordinary people to accomplish his great mission. And yes, reading about Othniel and Ehud and even David and Moses and Abraham may seem to be a little tedious, but we need to keep in mind that everything recorded in the Old Testament is pointing to one thing. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards one thing, and that is Jesus' coming. The salvation that we find in him because of God chose to use him to, to... accomplish this mission and he chose to use broken people along the way to move his mission forward that when everyone else in the old testament scriptures is unfaithful god is faithful reading and studying the old and new testament is like opening a giant thousand piece puzzle now i'm not a puzzle guy but my wife is and she opens those boxes of puzzles and there's just all these pieces and we and we can see these pieces and we look at these individual pieces and it's like oh this is a story about abraham and isaac and here's a story about moses and the exodus and here's a story about david and goliath and we know these stories but they're just a piece of the puzzle and as we fit those pieces together we get a fuller picture And that full picture is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can never forget that the goal of Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 is all about the promise and the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. We cannot forget that. 
And this morning, as we look at this psalm, this psalm does exactly that. It ties together both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In these short seven verses, we see redemption playing out. This psalm is connected to Abraham, it's connected to David, and it's ultimately connected to Jesus. Traveling from the beginning of redemptive history to salvation found in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of God's grand design. And it may seem weird or obscure that this short psalm nestled right here in the middle of the book of Psalms would carry so much weight and importance, but I assure you that it does. In fact, this psalm is the most quoted or alluded to psalm in all of the, Old, or all of the New Testament. It is either quoted or cited or even alluded to more than 25 times by various authors in the New Testament. In fact, this verse in Psalms is one of the ones that Jesus quotes from his own lips. Now I will warn you this morning that as we study and we make our journey around this, this uh, scripture, we are going to be all throughout the Bible. We're going to be in Genesis, we're going to be in Psalms, and we're even going to be in the New Testament in Hebrews, and some in Mark. And I'm trying to help you see the beauty of this picture of redemptive history. This is going to be, uh, be, be because primarily of verse 4 in Psalm 110 about this character named Melchizedek. We'll spend a, a good chunk of the morning sermon talking about Melchizedek. Now don't be afraid or ashamed if you've never heard of this guy before. He's relatively obscure in the scriptures. He's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament, and, and he's mentioned in one book in the New Testament. But I want to assure you that understanding Melchizedek will help us to better understand Jesus. And that's what we want, right? That's what we want. We want to better understand who Jesus is. To see him for he, who he is. To love him more fully, especially as we celebrate him during this season of Advent. This sermon is going to be broken down into three sections. So I'm going to have three points. Verses 1 through 3 is Jesus as the sovereign king. Verse 4 is Jesus as the ultimate priest. And Jesus 5 through 7 as Jesus the warrior king. Now, before we open up Psalm 110, I want to pray and ask for the Lord's guidance. Father God, we just come before you this morning, humbly asking for you to illuminate your scriptures, to open up our hearts and our minds and our souls to what it is you would have us to see this morning in your wondrous scriptures, that we would see the fullness of the revelation of who Jesus is in this Psalm, Psalm 110, that we would see the beauty of the picture painted of the history of redemption through the person and work of Jesus. And I pray that our eyes would be opened and our hearts softened to the reality that you are the King sovereign, that you are the King priest, the one who came to redeem the world. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. Psalm chapter 110 verse one through three says this, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. So in these three short verses, we see Jesus as the sovereign king. One of the beautiful things about our place in history, right, 2,000 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, is that through our knowledge of Jesus' life, some of the verses in the Old Testament that may have caused pause actually become more clear. St. Augustine said in about 1,700 years ago, he said this, he said, The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. 
Meaning that the cohesive library of books that we call the Holy Bible is telling one story, the story of redemption. And it's not until we get to the stories of the Gospels that we can truly see the beauty of what God is doing, what God has done. It's almost like those movies that you watch that don't really make sense until the end of the movie, where everything is kind of revealed and tied up. Uh, One of those movies, you know, like The Sixth Sense, spoiler alert, he's been dead the whole time, right? Um, but, But it's like that, when you see, and then you go back and you watch the movies after you know the ending, and everything starts to fit together and make sense. That's what the scriptures are doing. When we get to the birth and life of Jesus, the Old Testament makes more sense than it previously did. He is like the, the key, or, or as theologians say, he is the hermeneutical key to unlocking the meaning and the purpose behind the Old Testament. That's what these verses, and especially verse 1, is like. You see, the gospel authors tell us how to read and understand the verses of the Old Testament. The life of Jesus tells us how to make sense of some of these obscure things. Because if we're honest, outside of divine revelation, these words don't make a whole lot of sense. We learn from the title of this psalm that it is a a psalm of David. He's the author. This is verified later on when Jesus talks about this psalm, crediting it to David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David penned these words. And you may be thinking, how does this verse not make sense? It seems pretty straightforward. This is a declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's strange about this opening line is that these verses references two lords. Did you see that? The Lord and my Lord. These are two lords. The first lord in the line is speaking about the Lord of all creation. I'm I'm not sure if you know this, but God has a name, right? He has a proper name, and it's not just God or Lord. His proper name is Yahweh. This is the name that Moses revealed, was revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. And our English Bibles try their hardest to help us see when God's proper name is used. So if you go back to that verse, you will see that the the Lord in that, that first the Lord in that verse is all capital letters. You see that? That is an indication that that is the proper name of God. That is Yahweh. The second Lord is a different word altogether. And that is the Hebrew word Adonai. That is the title of Lord. So we've got Yahweh, the creator of all the universe, the Lord, talking to another Lord, the Lord of David, Adonai. And it's kind of confusing, right? David here is, is referring to both the Lord of all creation and about another Lord, this Adonai. But here we know that David is king, right? He's ruling over Israel. He's at the top of the food chain, so to speak, when it comes to all humans. And yet he is referring here to someone that is greater than him. And when, for all intents and purposes, he doesn't have a Lord other than God himself. He doesn't have anyone else that he needs to bow down to other than God himself, but he's talking about having another Lord. So who is this second Lord? We know the first one is Yahweh. Who is the second one? And then to add complexity to this conversation, what does Yahweh tell David's Lord? What does he declare? He says, sit at my right hand. Now, sitting at your right hand of God means that this Lord, Adonai, is going to have the same power, the same authority, and the same throne as Yahweh. He's going to be seen as equal to in power and in majesty and in glory as Yahweh. And we know from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, that God doesn't share his lordship with anyone. Right? If you read that, it says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Yet here we see that this Lord is going to rule and reign in conjunction with Yahweh. So who is David's Lord? 
Can you see how confounding and confusing this might be? How would those who are familiar with this passage, the ancient Jewish people who are reading this passage, how would they interpret it? Well, that throughout the Jewish history, this verse has been attributed to the coming Messiah, the anointed one who is going to be restoration and peace. The Lord of David is the one who will come after him to fix everything that is broken in the world. This verse right here is pointing to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the gospel, gospel authors tell us how to read and interpret this. If you look at Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through 37, we see this. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And a large crowd was listening to him with delight. Jesus here in Mark's gospel tells the scribes that he is the Messiah. He's using some sort of cryptic language, but essentially that's what he's saying. He's saying that the one that David wrote about, he is the one who is the long awaited king that comes to bring restoration. Jesus is the one who brings peace, but they don't like the restoration and the peace that Jesus is bringing. They wanted a nation, but Jesus is building a kingdom. They wanted to be free from oppression, but Jesus is going to free them from the bondage of sin. They wanted a great royal king, but Jesus came as a humble servant. Yet one day Jesus will come back to fulfill the rule and reign over the heavens and earth and recreate the new heavens and new earth. You see, Jesus wasn't the savior that they wanted. He wasn't the savior that they expected, but he was definitely the savior that they needed. Now, after declaring Jesus to be the one who is co-eternal with the Lord God, Yahweh, he makes promises to, about his kingly reign. He says that the enemies will be your footstool. This means that all those who oppose Jesus are ultimately going to be overcome by the conquering power of Jesus. The footstool is a symbol of total and complete victory. I heard someone that was talking about a visit that they made to Egypt and as they were touring around, they came to see some of the relics of King Tut. And with those relics was his footstool. And around his footstool were the names of all the nations or the depictions of all the nations and peoples that his empire had conquered. So every time that King Tut sat down on his throne, on his throne people would know all of the enemies that he had conquered. And they were underneath his feet. This is the type of picture that we get here, that those who oppose Jesus, those who oppose his good creation, those who would counter his plan and purposes are going to be laid to rest under his feet. Sin, death, the devil, and all his minions are going to be destroyed once and for all. He is going to reign eternally. In fact, this verse, this first verse of Psalm 110 is quoted at the end of Peter's public sermon, first public sermon at Pentecost publicly declaring that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one who is going to put all of the enemies under his feet. He is, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave declares to Satan and his minions that the battle has been won. He has defeated his enemies. Christ is victorious. And the final victory will be at his second coming when he recreates the heaven and the earth. Even though this new heaven and new earth hasn't taken place yet, 
Yahweh makes a promise to the Messiah in these verses that he will rule among his enemies or in the midst of his enemies. Meaning that right now, even though Jesus is opposed, even when the church faces persecution, even when his people are being imprisoned and martyred for their faith, the mission of the church and the mission of redemption is never going to end. It is never going to stop. There is no stopping the kingdom. Jesus is still ruling in the midst of opposition. As long as people are still declaring Jesus as Messiah, the gates of hell will not prevail. The growth of Jesus' kingdom isn't dependent on perfect circumstances. It's not dependent on comfort and complacency. The only thing that Jesus' church is dependent on for growth is him and him alone. As his enemies multiply, and as the world spirals into more chaos, spirals into more chaos, though things may not be as we want them to be, we can rest assured that Jesus is still ruling and reigning. He is still ruling and reigning among his enemies. We see this in the reality of our brothers and sisters in foreign countries who, though their lives are on the line, are seeing people come to know and embrace the good news of the gospel are coming to see the reality of Jesus' kingship. We see this in the book of Acts as God uses the persecution of Stephen to move his church mission forward. We know that as long as Jesus is on the throne, he is always winning. And the good news is, is that he will never be dethroned. So his rule is forever and ever. And in verse 3 we read, that your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of dawn to the dew of your youth belongs to you. People will freely offer to serve him, to fight for his cause, to go out in a dangerous mission field and proclaim the good news of Jesus, to tell their friends and family about this Christ who came, who lived the perfect life and died the sinner's death so that, that we could have redemption. This is the call of the church. This is the call for all who believe to be heralds of the gospel, to go and tell about the goodness and grace of Jesus. This is our calling and our magnificent privilege that we get to tell others where to find rest, where to find peace and where to find salvation. And we get to do this because we have been set apart and cleansed by our belief in Jesus as the son of God. We are called and equipped as ambassadors to live lives that are holy and pleasing to him, dressed in his holy splendor. How great is it that he took our filthy rags and gave us his splendorous robes of righteousness? How can we not share the good news with others? Now, the last line here offers some difficulty in interpretation, but here's the interpretation that, that I land on when it comes to the dew of your youth belongs to you. I believe this is speaking about the perpetual beauty and youth of Jesus in his glorified body. That he will never grow tired. He will never grow weary. His rule and reign will be forever and w without any exhaustion. Because he rules and reigns unlike anyone or any body who has ever lived before. He will offer to continue to keep the kingdom pure and beautiful and perfect. That's a wondrous thing for us to put our hope in. And Jesus' eternal rule and reign as the perfect king is good. But let me tell you, it gets better than that. We don't just have a king. We don't have any, just an eternal sovereign king. We also have the ultimate priest in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. 
you are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Here we read the second declaration of the Lord, and it's not just simply a declaration. The Lord is swearing an oath. He will not change his mind. That not only will the Messiah be a king, but he will also be a priest. Now this may not make a whole lot mean too much to us, right, as 21st century Christians. But it would have been practically unbelievable for the Jewish people. From their salvation out of Egypt, the king and the priest were two separate offices. And not only were they two separate offices, but they came from two different tribes and two different families of the tribes of Israel. The kings descending from the tribe of Judah and the priests coming from the line of Levi. These two offices, king and priest, were never to be intertwined. They were never to be combined. They were never to be crossed over from one to the other. In fact, we read in the Old Testament scriptures that there were kings who tried to act like priests and they were cursed by God. Saul tried to act like a priest in 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 5 through 14. He tried to offer a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. And when he offered that burnt sacrifice to the Lord, the Lord made a declaration against Saul. And he said that the kingdom is going to be torn away from you because you stepped out of your role. And then King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 burned and offered incense to the Lord. And guess what? He was struck down with leprosy until he died. God takes seriously what he has commanded the Israelites to do when it comes to the office of priest and king, that they should never be entwined. But why is this? Because the office of king and priest serve different purposes. The king represented God to the people, right? It was through, through his strength, his power, and his judgment, the king was a representation of God to the people. We read about this a couple weeks ago in Psalm 2. Now the priest represented people to God, through his sympathy, through his service, through his ability to offer atonement for sins. The, the priest offered atonement to God and God covered the sins of the people. So the king represented God to the people and the priest offer, or represented people to God. And here in Psalm 110, we see that God takes what is separate and he unites it. He declares that this Messiah, the Savior, will hold both offices of both priest and king. He will be equally king and priest, fully representing God to the people and people to God. He will both be the lion and the lamb, the judge and the Savior. The Messiah, Jesus, is the perfect fulfillment of both offices, only as he could be. And what we learn from this is that God can choose who gets to be both king and priest. People don't. People don't get to choose who's priest and king. Only God does. And if he desires to unite the offices, that is his prerogative as creator and sustainer of the universe. However, if man tries to join them, that is going against God's rule. And that is rebellion. And God dishes out the consequences. When talking about God getting to choose who gets to be priest and king, we need to look at this obscure character, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is only mentioned twice, mentioned twice in the Old Testament. And he's mentioned in the New Testament as well. He's mentioned here in Psalm 110 verse 4. But he's also mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. We're not going to read all of Genesis chapter 14 this morning. So I'm going to give a little context to what's happening before we read about Melchizedek. Abraham and his nephew Lot have gone their separate ways after they've left their homelands. And Lot finds himself in a pretty precarious position. 
So Abraham has to go out and rescue him. Abraham and his people end up fighting off some kings and some armies and rescue Lot. Then Melchizedek shows up, and we have about four verses about their interaction between Abraham and Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17 says this. After Abram returned from defeating that king and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Sheba Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, son of Salem, or king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. We learn a few things about this Melchizedek character in these verses. First, we read that he is king of Salem. That would be the future Jerusalem, the land of promise to God's people, who God promised that land to them himself. The second, we see that he is the priest of the God Most High. So we see here that, king, or that Melchizedek is fulfilling both the role of king and priest. But he isn't just any priest, right? He's a priest of God Most High, Yahweh himself. And at this point in the Genesis narrative, the only one we're told that is actually following the creator God is Abraham. And then all of a sudden, Melchizedek just shows up, comes out of nowhere, both as king of the land that God has promised his people and a priest of God Most High. He also comes, this is just an interesting tidbit, what does he come bringing? Bread and wine. Kind of an allusion to the Lord's Supper that we would see future, in the future. All of this happening before God installed and initiated the priesthood through Aaron, one of Abraham's descendants. Then before Melchizedek le leaves, what does Abraham do? Or Abram do? The father of the faith gave him a tenth of all that he received through the spoils of war. What a confounding person this Melchizedek is. He's a priest and a king who Abraham made an offering to. He's there one minute and he's gone the next. So we see Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14 and in Psalm 110, and we don't read about him again until the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And the author of Hebrews spends a great deal of time and space talking about Melchizedek, the character that has five total verses dedicated to him in all the Old Testament gets about three to four chapters in the New Testament. This is why, again, I will say that Jesus is the key to unlocking the deeper meaning of the Old Testament. You see, the author of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he was king of Salem, which means he was the king of peace, and that he resembled the son of God. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness, a king of peace that resembled the son of God. You know what Melchizedek is? He is a foreshadow. He is a taste of the ultimate priest king, Jesus Christ, the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But what David does he mean when he says the Messiah will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Jesus came to establish a new priesthood that wouldn't follow the line of Aaron, a divine line dictated by God Almighty. Secondly, when he says that he's going to be a priest forever, this comes from the fact that Melchizedek, you'll read this in Hebrews chapter 7, doesn't have a genealogy listed in the Old Testament. He just kind of shows up one minute and he's gone the next. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in verse 3 of chapter 7. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now again, this may be a little confusing for us, but if you've ever read through the Old Testament, and especially the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, you will read a lot of genealogies, a lot of begats, right? 
especially for important characters. Yet Melchizedek just kind of pops out of nowhere. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know anything about him. Almost as if he comes into existence without birth and lives forever, resembling the Son of God. And in Psalm 110, we are told that the Messiah is going to be this kind of eternal priest, one who existed from eternity past and continues to exist into eternity future, always being the priest, the mediator between God and man. And it is because of this oath from God that Jesus is the eternal priest, that we have been invited into his family. But Jesus is continually making sacrifice, isn't continually making sacrifices like the priest of old. Rather, he made the perfect sacrifice once and for all and is now sitting at the throne of God because of the work that is finished. He is sitting in the throne, interceding for us on our behalf with the Father. So our assurance of salvation is because Christ's work has been finished. The work on the cross, the reality that that he continues to be our perfect priest through his death, burial, and resurrection. So we can rest assured that if we trust in his sacrifice for our sins, then we are bought with the blood. Our assurance of salvation is rooted in who our priest is, the priest king, Christ Jesus. Now, I want to encourage you to go home and read through the book of Hebrews to see the beauty of this new and ultimate priest. Now, we know that Jesus is now the sovereign king in verses 1 through 3. And in verse 4, we see that he is the ultimate priest. But also, I want us to see that he is the victorious warrior or the warrior king in verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Much like Psalm 2 that we studied a few weeks ago, we see here that Jesus is going to win every battle. That he is not just the sovereign king and eternal peace, but he, priest, but he is the warrior king. He is the one who is going to judge the nations. He is going to judge and examine every one of our lives. All the rulers and the kings of the world are going to submit to his lordship. There is no escape from his judgment. He is going to be victorious. This is another picture of the warrior king who isn't soft, but is mighty, powerful. He rides in strength, conquering his foes. We studied his priestly duties in Hebrews, and now David in the Psalm 110 points us forward to this revelation to the book of Revelation, when Jesus finishes what he began. This type of thing that many people don't like to talk about when it comes to Jesus. We love Jesus' sacrifice. We love the resurrection of Jesus. We love Jesus the Savior. But when it comes to Jesus the warrior, we can kind of back up and grimace going, oh, we don't know about this. This makes us uncomfortable. But the scriptures show us that Jesus isn't merely a sacrifice. He isn't merely just a savior. He isn't just a priest. He is also the one who is going to come and judge the living and the dead. In fact, in these last three verses, we see five bold affirmations about Jesus and what he's going to accomplish. First, we see that he's going to crush the kings in the day of his anger. Those who think that they have power... Those who think that they have authority will be put to shame when they see the power and the glory in the, of the true almighty king. Second, according to verse 6, he will judge the nations, meaning that there is no one who's going to escape his judgment. Jesus isn't just a tribal king or a tribal judge. He is the judge of all people. All nations will be judged. 
Well, what they did when they, if they believed or if they didn't. Third, he will fill all the places with dead bodies, with the corpses. This is language about the Armageddon judgment of Revelation 19. We read in Revelation 19:17 through 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he called out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead, Come, gather together for a great supper of the Lord, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses, their riders, the flesh of everyone, both free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with the false prophet, all who had performed signs in his presence, he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with the signs. Both of them were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of flesh. We see that there is judgment coming, judgment for everyone. And this is why it is so imperative for us to go tell people about the gospel so they don't have to face the judgment, that they can repent and believe and they can be safe from the wrath of God that he's going to pour out. Fourth, we read that he will crush the leaders of the entire world, literally the head over many lands. And this crushing language is language from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when it talks about the seed of the woman coming to crush the head of the serpent. Those who are deceitful, those who are against God, Jesus is going to crush them. Fifth and finally, he will drink from the brook by the road. So after his war is over, after he has finished conquering his enemies, he's going to be refreshed. And not only him refreshed, but his people will be refreshed. The land will be made anew and he will be the one who will be worshipped forever and ever Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. You will either bow down to worship King Jesus or you will be made to bow down through the crushing of your head. There is no refuge from Jesus. There is only refuge in him. Believe in him or you will face his wrath. Jesus is the perfect king priest who put on flesh who lived the perfect life, who offered his life as an atonement for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and we are waiting for his return. That baby that was put in a manger, wrapped in those tight clothes, is now the reigning king. And he is going to come, not as a baby, but as judge. And I pray that if you do not know him today, If you haven't given your life to him, I pray that you would do it today. Let's pray. Father God, we just lift up to you this this time. Lord, I pray that if we have hearts that are hardened or we don't recognize you as king, Lord, I pray that we would give our lives to you, that we would worship you, that we would do everything we can to know you, Lord, that it is through your sacrifice that we can have redemption. It is through your sacrifice shed blood as the perfect priest who makes atonement once and for all that we can stand into your presence and worship. Lord, I pray that in response to this song, if if we have people in here who haven't given their life to you, Lord, that they would open their eyes and their hearts to, to the beauty of who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.